Hello, welcome to Empty Plates, a podcast by Bear Kitchen. Empty Plates is a podcast about food and memory. I'm your host, founder of Bear Kitchen, Anjali B.S., and I believe that every plate tells a story. Today, I'll be speaking to Martin Allen Morales. Martin is an award-winning Peruvian restaurateur and the founder of the incredible restaurant group Ceviche that houses both Ceviche and Andina. As well as being a phenomenal chef and cookbook author, Martin is also a pretty avid record collector. Most recently, he has founded 2N Management, a circular economy-focused management consultancy where the main aim is to transform behaviour and increase conscious consumption. I'm pretty excited to hear about the empty plates. Hey Martin, how are you? Hello there, nice to see you. You too, how are you doing? I'm doing great, enjoying this prolonged summer at the moment. How's everything over in Richmond right now? It's great following 10 years of working in restaurants and working in you know, nutrition and working with Peruvian food and working with wonderful ingredients. Uh, for the last year or so, it's been wonderful to evolve from that, continue to work in food, but also work in other aspects of sustainability and the circular economy. So that's what's keeping me busy here in Richmond with a whole host of people around the world and a collective that we are forming to support founders of the circular economy who are following those principles. So yeah, it's a really, really exciting time. And and lockdown has given us an opportunity to get some really conscious, uh, purpose-led people together to try and um, create things, uh, create different food, different products in a better way. So that's what my focus has been lately. It's interesting that you talk about the circular economy as a really important part of your evolution, having been in the food world for 10 years. How did that focus change? I've not known the word circular economy for long, but I knew the words agriculture, the word regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture, as well as cooking with no waste before it was called zero waste in a way, in some ways. So those are some of the foundations I had as a kid. That's how my great aunts taught me how to cook in Peru. And that's how my grandmother, who was a cooperative leader, you know, sustainable farmer, that's how she taught me how to live. And so from when I started to cook when I was about 10 years old, I've always known what to do with the whole beetroot and the whole chicken. And and I've never wasted bits. When people leave them on plates, I put them back into, into the pan or I put them in a little container to kind of keep them in the fridge and have them later. And I know how to make recipes from recipes from recipes that can last two or three or four days. And I know how to take care of a fridge uh, that might be full of ingredients and think, okay, that's what we need to work on because that might be going off and make sure nothing goes off. So I think it's, it's something that I've been blessed with having a, teaching from family from when I was young and I think it's much more important today to consider that uh, especially as our natural resources are being depleted and and we're creating a lot of toxic waste and we need to factor in our own food waste. It's phenomenal these recipes and techniques and ways of living and dare I say the art of living these stories that are like talismans handed down from generation to generation are almost lost because we I think when you arrive in a new country, you're trying to adapt to the way of living there and you sort of forget everything else to fit into a system. So 
what sustained you elsewhere and what sustained everybody and generations, that knowledge is almost gone, but it still exists in those places today. It's been incredible how our societies have prospered from industrialization, from you know, next big movements of technology, from the different science, chemistry that human beings have been able to make progress for. But there's been, you know, in order to advance supposedly as a race, but there's been a lot of consequences of that. Sometimes people have been left behind and they continue to be left behind. And sometimes some of those processes have been harmful. And sometimes we're all very obsessed and, I, and I've, been, I've won awards for innovation, for creativity, for being a pioneer of whatever. And sometimes we like to look forward a lot and we like to think in, into the future. But as, as you sort of say there, a lot of the answers to what we really, truly need, not what we might want, but what we need, are in the past, are with our ancestors, are with indigenous communities in developing countries not just in developed countries. There's so much more we can learn from those traditions to even fix our world right now, to even improve our developed country lifestyle, particularly our consumer culture, which is unfortunately just too fast, too disposable, too wasteful. So I'm blessed to have that heritage, but also you know, I was very blessed to have a, a period where I was able to show that work through the restaurants that we, we opened and that we created. I agree with you 100%. I think, you know, speed is the vulture in this situation. And after revolution, 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 we have a revelation, which is that the speed of revolution is not what we want. And yet you know, our DNA seems to be so attached to it. So I think it needs people like you who have worked in a system of going, well, actually, I'm going to reflect back on my roots and see what was, what was important for me and what was easy, what was a learnt experience that is still a sustained way of living now. And how do I now, and having worked in the industry that is based on speed for 10 years, and you're serving a customer who is focused on speed, how do I combine those together now? and find an approach to serve the same community, but sustain this way of living. So talking from that, let's, let's go to your childhood, because you grew up in Peru, and I'm going to let you kick off your first plate. Yeah, I think uh, when I found out about your podcast, and when, when we started talking as well, I just thought, okay, what, what, what is what a cheeky little plate that I had as a kid? What is, what is a dish that, you know, that, that my mom made very quickly? She wasn't the greatest cook, but she cooked with as much love as she could. And, and what she did, she did well. But I think every parent has a dish up their sleeve in any part of the world that they just whip out when they're short of time, when they need to feed the kids something nutritious. And that dish was the dish that I'm going to tell you about. That dish was um, a dish that had white rice, a fried egg, two, if you're lucky, or if you're really demanding, uh, and fried banana. So... The combination of this caramelized banana with these nicely seasoned rice, and, and we make some great white rice. I mean, I've eaten just white rice from some, uh, some cooks and some chefs and some parents, you know. You know, a little bit of garlic and a little bit of salt, boom, you've got a fabulous rice, right? That's the trick. <laughs> and just a nice crisp Friday, you know, Running, running in the middle, 
but you know you want those little crispy bits on the outside as well that are a little bit overcooked that's a good friday and if you're lucky you have a bit of avocado with that nice ripe avocado or or even a cheeky bottle of some kind of chili sauce you might have lying around the older the better <laughs> the older the chili sauce the better the older the chili sauce if it's by itself by date even better it's bizarre but it's it's kind of true <laughs> sorry i shouldn't be saying that <laughs> fine it's just aged it's like a I, I don't know. It's, maybe that maybe it's just more potent than the vinegar is just you know fermented a little bit but uh, who cares but um but yeah so but the egg must always of course be served on top of the rice ah uh, of course because when you break the yolk blump, it goes on the rice and it's like wow it's just the perfect combo that would be something that you could have at any time of the day i guess well the two staples in peru are rice and potatoes right and actually many dishes like the famous lomo saltado, which is the, the steak and chips dish, also have rice. So many dishes have rice and potatoes and then your, your, your meat and veg. So there's always white rice. So actually this dish is the white rice that was made the night before that was used for a nice, uh, long, uh, slow-cooked stew uh, that had loads of ingredients, that had loads of flavours, and you just got the white rice left over. So next day... You heat it up, hopefully with a non-stick pan, a dash of water, super slow cook with the lid on, let it steam up, boom, it's ready. And then you pop a fried egg on top, you pop a bit of, uh, you use the same uh, oil that you've used for your fried egg and you cook the banana about the same time because it takes about the same time, especially a banana, a ripe banana. You can't, you can't cook that for more than the time that you cook a fried egg. And you're very gentle in whipping the half by the way, when you cook a, a fried banana, you slice it through the middle long ways and you, you cook them both sides flat down. And it's always a little bit of fun <laughs> and a little bit of a nightmare. It depends how you view it. Depends which way your cup is full or not. Well, just to clarify, you're talking ripe banana. You're not talking a plantain for anyone. No, I'm, no, no, no. I'm talking about ripe banana. You know, not many people have the luxury of finding uh, plantain in the supermarket. Plantain is, you know, is African, it's Caribbean, it's from the jungle when it comes to Peru. So in the coast, yes, we had we have plantain these days, but back in the day, there was just any, any type of banana, the, the traditional banana. So you cook that, you flip it over once, there's that, that little funkiness of, oh, can I flip it over? And it always breaks, you know, because it's quite soft. Who cares? And then you just, you know, lay it on on the dish next to the big sort of mound of rice. And if you want to treat yourself or have a bit of fun or feel like it's the 1980s, you put the rice in a cup, yeah, in a, a sort of round teacup and you press it down and then whip it over. Exactly. Yeah. And you think, oh, my God, I'm, I'm eating restaurant food from the 1980s. And as I said, you know, there were many times when my mum was busy. She used to love doing yoga. She still does yoga. She's still a yoga teacher now in her, in her 80s. But she used to love skipping rope. Uh, she used to love uh, doing exercises. She was always very busy. And as a kid, I'm, I was always asking for, for attention. But I always got it when she cooked this dish and she sat next to me and watched me eat it. I lived with my mum after, God, 12 years. And there was these moments that, I had an experience where it was just her watching me eat 
because I'd say, mum, could you make this? And she'd say, yes. And then she'd just come into the lounge and watch me eat. I was like, mum, don't you want to eat? She's like, no, I just want to. You have the same look on your face that you did when you were five years old that you do now. And I get the same joy out of it as I did then. And I was just like, oh God, I'm welling up now. I was just like, I know that that feeling is, is sheer joy because you can, you appreciate it as a child, but you also appreciate it as a mother. I know I just, oh God, I'm feeling a bit teary. I know that feeling. And particularly my auntie Carmela and my auntie Oti, when they used to make me food, they would never eat. And it's exactly the same story, Angeli. It's, they used to just watch me and I was like, surely you want to eat? They'd like, no, I just love watching you eat. So there must be something of that pure, unconditional love that comes across and selflessness and generosity. And, you know, it just, it just goes to show that love can fill your tummy as well, can nurture you and, and give you the vitamins and minerals and whatever stuff food gives us that gives us that so that our bodies and our hearts and our souls are well fed. I just love the way that you speak about it. I feel that whenever, whenever I speak to you, Martin, I'm like somebody who is just as emotional about food as I am. It's so nice to have that level of depth and dialogue. We've just talked about this plate of food, this delicious plate of food, and I've not had breakfast yet, but that your mum fed you and you have a 12-year-old daughter. How do you integrate this rich culinary history, it's your working life as well. How do you integrate that into building a culture for your daughter and sort of sharing that history of food with her? I'm blessed to have two kids, Felix and Tilly. Felix is 14, Tilly is 12. Tilly is short for Otilia. Otilia was uh, the sister of Carmela, my, my two great aunts. And Otilia was a very gentle, very warm auntie, as was Carmela, but she was a lot fiercer. <laughs> and a lot stricter and you know my wife and I always have had a the way of upbringing our the way of bringing up our children is is just let them discover uh, let them have as much freedom as possible and try to be as loving and caring as we can I'm probably much stricter than my wife is but in terms of food um, yeah, I mean I try to be no nonsense zero tolerance you'll get you'll have what, what's, what's been put in front of you but actually they're both both of my kids eat very differently. And yes, I try to put all kinds of fun stuff from different countries because I've always been a collector of not just music, but, but also dishes, not just songs and not just, you know, a lover of different cultures, but also dishes. So, but I know that Tilly doesn't quite like chili and I know that she, she suffers with some greens, but I also know she's mad about strawberries and she's mad about cucumber. So, you know, if I whip some of those out, that's going to feed her and give her the, the vitamins that she needs. But, you know, like any kid, both of them like chips and like burgers and like, you know, spaghetti bolognese. I just have to make a really healthy one and sneak in a few courgettes. We talked about this moment when you left Peru and it'd be great if you could just read something that you wrote and then speak more to that. This is quite a poignant moment. So just to give some perspective, when you were launching your second book, Andina, just correct me if I'm wrong, you decided to, instead of doing sort of 
a tour of the country that's similar to your first book, the, the Ceviche, where you did almost like gig style traveling around the country and doing live pop-ups and, you know, getting people seeing the food, trying the food and making it more interactive. You took, dare I call it, more of an emotional, a historical, anthropological approach to Andina, which was taking people on a journey of emotionally of where you'd been through theatre. And you wrote, wrote a play. And I just, you know, maybe I'm having a tearful morning, but I just read a little bit of that. And I was like, oh my God, it's, it's phenomenal. So please, if you could. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so yeah, the backstory is I was born in Peru and lived there till I was 11. But, but yeah, so yeah, I had a lot of fun. I just, you know, I like being creative. So the cookbook, Andina has a hundred wonderful recipes with lovely glossy pages of fabulously taken photos by Dave Brown and David Loftus. But that's one half of the book. The other half of the book are these short stories that I wrote about my travels around the Andes of Peru and the 11 regions. And, uh, and mostly, mostly they're childhood stories. I then took those stories and created a play, which I performed in, in the Southwark Playhouse, and which, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I'd never written a play, so it's not that good, but, and my performance was terrible, but, but I had a lot of fun doing it, and I love challenging myself, particularly creatively. So this is a, just a few lines from a particular moment that was very important and very life-changing. I'm gonna read it now. I'm at Jorge Chavez Airport, Peru's main airport. Today, it's one of South America's finest, but back then, it was a wreck. It's damp, misty, hectic. I'm 11 years old. I'm with my dad and my sister and my whole family, and we are about to leave Peru forever. So yeah, just a couple of lines, but uh, there's a strong build-up to that. The Shining Path guerrillas had taken over much of Peru. The place was very violent and my parents weren't getting on. And in fact, my mum left. So my dad said, uh, and my dad was threatened by the Shining Path for being British. Uh, my mother was Peruvian, uh, but my father was British. And the Shining Path didn't like white men and they didn't like British nor Americans. So they threatened him. And so he was like, I'm out of here. And with his marriage breaking down, he said, I'm taking the kids back to Britain so they can have a place that's safe, a better education. And of course, it broke my mum's heart and it broke all of our hearts. But it was a necessary thing at the time. And it was a really challenging time for all of us. There's something about being the story of migrants, of refugees, that I don't think is really talked about enough. Only through Black Lives Matter recently, I really thought about my dad's journey and being kicked out of Uganda and never having, he doesn't talk about it. And I thought he was, only until recently, I was quite maybe rude with him to be like, just talk about it. But I didn't realize the real deep, deep, deep pain and indescribable feeling he has towards being kicked out of his home and having to rebuild a life in a country that didn't want to accept him. And it was it's difficult. So I can only imagine especially as an 11-year-old child moving to England. And I'm assuming that you, you spoke English uh, when you were 11 because dad's English. How was that for you? I spoke English with an accent. <laughs> so I can do a very good Latino accent, but, but that's how I used to speak. And then, you know, when I got to this country, I was also unfortunate to, to land in a very tough 
working class uh, mining town who didn't like someone different and someone foreign. The National Front were very prevalent in that town. Uh, There's a lot of skinheads. And because there was, you know, ridiculously high levels of unemployment because Thatcher had closed all the mines, bloody foreigners were blamed and I was a bloody foreigner to them. So it was really tough. I suffered from racism for a year in that town in the local school until I, age sort of 11 and a half, found a way, you know, imagine that, a kid of 11 and a half trying to negotiate his way to get into another school, which I did, which was a, another, another school in, in Loughborough, away from, from where we were living in Leicestershire. And I, and I went to a Catholic school. Sorry, just to backtrack, you lived in, that was Leicestershire? Yeah, so I lived in Colville, and then and I went to school there, and that's where they, they had those challenges. And what year was that? That was 1985. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm from Leicester, and I remember it being that bad. Yeah, those, those little towns were tough. But yeah, the migrant journey is, is, is not told enough. And yes, it was tough on us kids, and we have to, and the ones that actually, us that migrated in a way we're also first generation migrants but first generation migrant kids you know our journey is quite unique it is full of pain but it also you know most of our adult lives have been spent in in the new country shall we say that that we're also part of but our parents you know had to give up completely their roots in the middle of their adulthood so i was asked in an interview about two years ago what did my mother feel at that moment at the airport when I was leaving and I just welled up and burst out in tears in this interview because I just thought gosh I've not really thought about that properly the pain that she must have gone through to see her 11 year old son leave must be must be awful and then my dad to think god I've got the responsibility on my own to go back to, to Britain, where, I, where he hadn't lived for, I don't know, 20 years, and rebuild a brand new life with not much money and with a whole world that had changed. I mean, I remember going to live in Mexico for a year, and I lived in Mexico for a year in the sort of early 90s, and I came back to England, and I was like, God, everything's changed. The fashion's changed. The, the politics have changed, and the vibe on the street has changed, and you just feel like so left out of culture and other people. But my dad, 20 years god he must have felt like an alien so so yeah it's it's really nice to put yourself in not just your parents shoes but in other people's shoes so i would very much love to find out what it was like for a ugandan refugee for a pakistani refugee for an afghan refugee for a british refugee that goes to live in argentina whatever for a jewish refugee I think there's so much value in doing that. I keep referencing the last six months because it comes up, but the the idea of service and altruism has really peaked in the last seven months because we recognize that people need help. We ourselves need help. So egos have deflated and the sense of community has risen, which is wonderful. And I think what I'm seeing is that there is a lot more listening and learning and there is, there is more of people finding community because they knew people had to find themselves in different ways and support in ways that they've never had to. So we might be in a sort of 
global crisis, but from crisis, you know, there's also different fruits that are blossoming. We are moving into an era of definitely of much more consciousness and maybe even a golden era of community building. Maybe, maybe. That's the hope. Because some of us know that we can't live on our own. We can't live lonely. We can't just follow our selfless ambitions and, and you know, tear up whatever is on our path. We know that we need others. We know that we are connected to others. And the sooner we start realizing that, that we as physical human beings are just, you know, beautifully insignificant, but also absolutely connected to each other, you know, the more we will feel balanced, happy and, and rewarded as well. Yeah. This, talking about reward community, let's talk about reunion because you have a plate of food that is of a time of reunion with a certain friend. So please tell me about that. When I was growing up in Leicester, <laughs> just off uh, Victoria Park, you know Victoria Park? God, like This is like my whole life we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, of course. So Victoria Park, you know, there's the university there, there's colleges. I went to Wigiston Collegiate. It's now called Regent College. I studied my A-levels there. I became student president. I don't know how I blanked that. It was a lot of fun. Just on that road, it's called the London Road, just overlooking Victoria Park, there was a small little school called the Irwin Academy, and it did language courses. And I knew Spanish and a bit of French, and, and obviously I spoke English. But what they did was they had foreign students that came every summer, you know, like these groups of wonderful foreign students that come and learn English. And one, most of these students were French or, or Spanish or Italian. And I got a job there two summers running. My title was uh, social activities coordinator. <laughs> uh, and I got, to, I got to drive the minibus uh, and I, <laughs> I got to take uh, all these uh, foreign students, wonderful kids. I was only like three years older than them. I got to take them to um, temping bowling. Uh, I even got to take them clubbing and got to take them to the cinema. I took them to Chatsworth House, to Madame Tussauds, all these kind of places. Anyway, one year, the whole summer, the whole of the month of August was booked out for these, these group of Malaysian students, like 30 Malaysian students. They, they, they booked the whole place. And of course, we had a well of the time. And I never met a Malaysian person. I never met a Malaysian Muslim. And so through them, I got to know a little bit, bit more about Islam. I'd known about Islam through friends at Wigiston Collegiate in Leicester, because Leicester has a, has a strong Punjabi, uh, uh, Hindi, uh, Sikh, as well as Muslim community. And I had many Muslim friends. But this was different. This was Malay. It was Muslim. And, and they had their own traditions, uh, their own ways of prayer, and they're also their own food. Anyway, so I made friends with them. And then when I left, or when they were leaving, they were saying, Martin, 1994 is Visit Malaysia year. So they put on this wonderful trip where I was able to stay at each of their houses. I stayed at 15 houses all over Malaysia, two days each. I was there for a month. They drove me from one place to the other. Sometimes they stayed in the, in the van that they drove me in. And so I got to stay with all these Malaysian Muslim families and just eat their food, you know, talk to their sisters and, and their grannies and, and find out who's ill and who's happy and who's studying, who's in the army and go and eat local food as well as in their homes. And, you know, found out that they have the spiciest, heaviest curries for breakfast because it's so hot. They've got these poignant sort of punchy, you know, very smelly kind of fruit called durian and 
and they've got these other fruit called rambutan and and they've got these just big big flavors lots of fish oil stuff going on and anyway malaysia was an incredible country malacca ipoh kuala lumpur uh, kota baru johor baru penang I, I went to all those places what a blessing and you know to learn their culture a culture that's very honest very loyal very respectful there is a non-tactile open culture in that way we as latinos we're all over each other you know hugging kissing you know arms everywhere hands everywhere it's just awful right i love it but but these malays they don't touch each other in public and so it was like wow this is a bit different it was a lot of fun and i i just learned so much about dignity and about integrity and about about loving each other in a different way because their communities and their families are very tight in tight in it in a very nice way but the dish that i most remember from that trip was this amazingly leaf wrapped steamed fish with lots of spices lots of juices lots of lime lots of chili that fish stayed in my mind for many years and so did the relationships i had with those guys this was pre internet <laughs> and when people just had a phone and landline and when you had to contact someone if the landline didn't work the only other way you had to contact was through a letter and so i had there all of these guys addresses and a landline and i had that on an a4 piece of paper and i kept that piece of paper i lost touch with all of these guys obviously a year later we were still in touch and and writing the odd letter but then after a while we just lost touch and that piece of paper though with their with their addresses and their phone number just stayed with me and i've always kept it right next to my passport in my little file that says important stuff you know we've all got that file at home and we keep the odd thing like passport photos extra passport photos and maybe i don't know driving license and other bits maybe a letter from a loved one but the yeah, i kept that a4 piece of paper folded up and i've kept that in that file for over 20 years and just thinking one day one day one day i'm going to be in touch because when i left i said i've learned so much from you guys and i love you guys so much one day when i have when i hope to be blessed with a wife and children i'd like them to see this i'd like them to come here and i'd like them to understand your culture and the way you live and to meet you and so that always stayed with me always 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 and then a couple of years ago i said to my wife you know the kids ain't going to want to go on holiday with us forever because they're going to get independent they're 10 and 12 and uh you know we should splash out take our savings out and take them something somewhere that where they won't go when they've got their own money and went somewhere that's really far out there that's not just either disneyland or a skateboard park or whatever let's take them something really really different and uh lucy my wife says well, where, where do you want to go i said I'd like to take to Malaysia. I made a promise to myself and to a load of friends I had there. I've not been in touch with them, but I just think it would be mind-blowing. And I know that you will love it because it's, you know, the nature out there is wonderful. And so I got that little piece of paper out and I thought, "Oh my goodness, how am I going to find these people?" Anyway, in uh, in a couple of hours, I found one on LinkedIn just through the name because none of the phone numbers worked because there were landlines back in 25 years ago. Uh, I found found one of them on LinkedIn. I sent him a message and just kept my fingers crossed. 24 hours later, he was like, "Martin, where have you been? We've missed you." And then we started talking about everyone. And I said, "Look, I'm thinking of coming." They said, "Brilliant, come. We can all gather together. We'll have a few lunches. Blah blah blah." And so, you know, 
as if no time had passed, we were on that flight and we were having lunch with some of those guys, their wives and their many children in a restaurant having steamed fish. And it was just beautiful. It was Visit Malaysia year again. Visit Malaysia year every year. <laughs> that is such a beautiful story. You often can feel like you've lost touch, but life is so busy. And when somebody reaches out and you reach out to somebody else or someone reaches out to you that you've not spoken to in years, it's not that you don't care about that person. It's just because life goes forward. And to have that person come back into your life for a brief moment is, you know, life is so short. And that those moments, those small moments where someone remembers you is so beautiful. I feel like we've traveled the world together and <laughs> the, the place I want to go right now is, is home. And you talked about a dish that you feel is cross-culture, cross-narrative, global. That dish is chicken soup. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for giving me the challenge to think of different dishes. And I, and I mentioned before, before our interview, I sort of said, yeah, there's this one dish I want to talk about. Yeah, chicken soup. So um, uh, that's the dish that I go when I need a bit of comfort, when I've got a migraine, when I need a bit of TLC and there's no one to give me that. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a really simple dish. It's also a dish, it's also an, an essential dish for the way we should live uh, in terms of our zero waste uh, consumption. Of course, you can make it vegan without the chicken because chicken soup is not just chicken and water. In this case, it's chicken it's onions, it's carrots, it's celery, it's garlic, and a bit of salt and pepper if you want. And uh, that's the basis of it. If you want, in Peru, we, we also add some potato. We also sometimes add a bit of rice and maybe some broad beans or peas if you want. Maybe a giant kernel corn, not sweet corn because it turns the whole thing a bit too sweet, but giant kernel corn that's, that's not as sweet. And in Peru, it's a classic. And of course, when I buy chicken, I buy the whole chicken and I take all the little different pieces off the chicken and I'm left with the carcass. That's what you use to make chicken soup. And so you make a whole meal out of that. And so there's a real pleasure of taking the chicken pieces out so that you can use it in another type of stew or another type of dish. You can marinate them overnight, use them for something the next day. But when you've got the carcass, that's what you use for the chicken soup. And you slow cook that. And what I usually do is I take the carcass out once it's been cooked and it's starting to fall off the bone. I take it out of the chicken soup, put it on a plate, let that carcass cool down a little bit, not fully, and then just take a bit of salt and just sprinkle a little bit of salt on that carcass and pull off all those little bits of chicken. And I put them all in a little, in, in a plate, and I put about three quarters of it, no bones, back into the soup, into the broth. And the other lot, I just eat with a bit of mayonnaise. <laughs> so that's the chicken soup. And I love just picking up those bones. It just reminds me of my childhood, my growing up with, with my aunties, Carmela and Otilia, my great aunts. And the chicken soup can be, you know, put in the freezer forever. But in terms of your... You're a sort of segue there uh, that you mentioned at the beginning. I think every culture has got a chicken soup. 
certainly in Malaysia, they've got chicken soup. They have tons of different types of Malay chilies and, and fish oil and, and a few other things. And certainly um, my Jewish friends have, have chicken soup with dumplings and, and a bit more saffron and other ingredients. And, uh, you know, every, every culture seems to have their own chicken soup. That's probably because chickens, you know, are, are easy to access, easy to, to nurture, but also it's a soup that can be used with leftovers. So, um, as I said, it can, of course, be made vegan with the different types of veg leftovers that we might have. And that's equally as delicious. So, um, yeah, highly recommend it. No, I'm totally up for it. And I really admire this whole narrative that you have with zero, zero waste. And it's completely in alignment with the way that I live. And I think the soup is a perfect example of anything goes. I love the fact that your dish that brings you comfort and makes you feel like you're basically having a hug is also a zero waste dish too. Because you're like, I'm having a hug, but I'm ensuring that I use every single part of this chicken. And by the way, that goes with the onions and the carrots and the celery that you might put in there as well. You know? But there is something about having a savory meal. And I know that both in Latin America and in Britain, you know, we've all got a sweet tooth as well, right? So, you know, a bit of cheesecake we all love, right? Or a bit of Haagen-Dazs. But, um, or Ben & Jerry's, sorry. Ben & Jerry's, much more sustainable. I might think more Haagen-Dazs, to be honest. <laughs> but there is something about having something warm and savory and a liquid that kind of goes into your body and just warms up your body when it's feeling a little bit down. It's very restorative. Actually, in Peru, some of these broths, not just the chicken one, but also the fish broth that we make with the scraps after we've made our ceviches, the fish broth and the chicken broth sometimes, they call it levanta muertos which means it lifts up the dead. <laughs> so it's kind of drank. These are kind of eaten and, and had also after a, after a very bad hangover, you know, and when you're feeling super ill. So that's why it said it lifts up the dead. <laughs> it's very, very morbid, but, but yeah. Brilliant. Well, every time I speak to you, I just feel I've traveled the world with you. And I just feel that I'm exactly where I need to be. And it's a really nice, narrative because you can't feel like that with most conversations because your humility around food and your ability to just make it emotional is really important I think in the way that we look at food going forward because it's such an integral part of our lives we have to be emotional about it in order to you know preserve it and I love that the work that you're doing now is about finding a preservation and humans as a part of this circular approach to building a more sustainable future and perspectives that look how we look at food um, I'm just really like humbled to have gone on this journey with you I think I might ask for a few of these recipes because I'm sure people will be like how do you make that rice with the banana so thank you so much for being on uh, the empty plates podcast and sharing with me today truly humbled and I'm sure I'm going to speak to you very soon absolute pleasure thank you Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And why not follow Bear Kitchen on Instagram?